so thankful to be with family this morning. Jesus said that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And to hear this morning about the nation of Haiti, uh, to be reminded again of why we're here. If you're like me and you're a visual learner and a visual thinker, you were probably thinking about America and you were able to picture her as Peter described her and uh, just so thankful that he was able to go and touch her and uh, Lord willing <clears throat> he's going back and to try to make her and her friends there their existence their living situation a little bit better and I pray that we as a church will never, ever forget what it's all about. That we will never, ever just become so inclined to having church that we miss that we're called to be church. And hearing about her, it reminds me of a story of a man who was on a rescue mission to save starfish. He was out on the shore and he had noticed how hundreds if not thousands of starfish had washed up on the shore. And so he took it upon himself to begin to throw as many of them back into the ocean as possible. So he's bending them over, picking them up, throwing them out, bending them over, picking them up, throwing them out. And so a passerby came and said, what do you think you're doing? And he said, I'm trying to save as many starfish as I possibly can. And so I'm picking them up and I'm throwing them back into the ocean. The passerby who was somewhat skeptic said, you know, there are just too many of them out here. There's no way you can make a difference with all of these starfish here on the beach. To which the man replied by bending down, picking up a starfish and said, well, I may not be able to save all of them, but I can save this one right here. And we won't be able to save everybody. We can't reach everybody, but we can reach those who are in our reach. And I pray that after church today, that Peter and Angel will have many of us signed up to go. And if you're not going to Haiti, that you will join us in going to J.T. Moore because we have beautiful children there as well who live in the lap of luxury here in Davidson County, Nashville, who many of them, again, struggle to know what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear to school. They don't have help tutoring them with school, many single-parent situations and and so they're hurting people all around us. They're hurting people in this church. And we always need help, especially with the children, um, to help on Sunday mornings, to help on Wednesday nights. Because Jesus said that the kingdom belongs to children. And there's something that the innocence of a child, and not only 
us reaching them, but how they can reach us back. As a matter of fact, uh, this Thursday, this past Thursday, I was at J.T. Moore. My wife and I, we go up once a week and we greet the children as they come into the school because we just try to encourage them and say hey to them just to maybe help lift their attitude and their mood a little bit. We may comment about their hair. Oh, girl, your hair's looking good. Or I'll see one of the fellas, he's got some Nikes on or some loud socks or whatever's going on. I'll just try to say something to lift their head up and let them know that someone sees them, someone is greeting them, and that this is not going to be like any other day. Well, as I walked around the halls of J.T. Moore, spending time with Dr. Hughes, I noticed there was an inscription on the wall. No, it wasn't graffiti, but it was an inscription that many of us may not know because it was written in Latin. And this inscription is on our currency as Americans. This inscription is also the great seal of the United States of America. And whenever I go to D.C. and I tour the Capitol, I go into the rotunda and I look up into that massive, beautiful ceiling that was hand-painted back in the 1800s, and I see this inscription that was also on the walls of J.T. Moore, and that inscription is, E. Pluribus Unum, E. Pluribus Unum, and what that means as Americans is it means out of many, one. So when you think about our nation's history, the 13 original initial colonies, they had that mantra, they had that saying, that was the vision of the United States of America at the time, out of many, one. Now, in the kingdom of God, it's quite opposite from that. In the kingdom of God, it is not e pluribus unum, or out of many one, but in the kingdom of God, it is e unum pluribus, and that is out of one many, out of one many. You see, God made us from one. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So that is our God. He created us. He created us all with dignity, purpose, value. He created us in his image, the imago dei, the image of God in man. So we're all special. We're all valuable in the sight of God, and it should be in one another's sight. But that's why when God changes a life, we're able to see people the way God sees them, and that is everyone is special. Everyone is valued in the presence of God. So from Adam, we all descend. From Adam and Eve, every one of us, every nation, every group of people come from Adam and Eve. And even after the flood that we read about in Genesis chapter 9 and 10, we see the table of nations where from the sons of Noah, we all descend. 
So we all come from Adam, from one nation, or from one blood, from one man. We all descend. But even from Noah's sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, we all come. So our creator, he has a specific plan. We also know that God makes us righteous from one. Because unfortunately, from one man, not only did we descend by work and way of our creator, but by one man, sin entered into the world. When Adam and Eve, who happened to be our federal head, when Adam sinned and he broke God's commands and he ate from the tree, ate the forbidden fruit, the Bible says their eyes were open and they experienced spiritual death. And some 900 years later, they would experience physical death. Well, as a result of their disobedience, we have inherited from them not only humanity, but now a marred humanity, now dysfunction. Now we're separated from life with God because of Adam and Eve's choice. But I'm so glad that God did not leave us in that condition. He came to see about us. And in Genesis chapter 3, God even prophesied right there when man had fallen into sin, God had prophesied that he would send his son through the seed of a woman who would come and wage this war and win this war against the tyranny of Satan and against the power of death, Jesus would come to rescue us through the cross and through his resurrection and bring us back and buy us back to God because God cannot pardon sin without a payment. And his son paid for our sin. And the reason why he could pay for our sin is because he was and he is a perfect substitute for us. Anyone or anything else falls short of the glory of God. But the son was able to please the father's righteous indignation towards sin, which is why the father crushed his son. It pleased the Lord to bruise his son because through bruising his son, he was going to be able to welcome us in through the blood of his son. And that anyone who believes on Jesus Christ can be and will be born again and accepted in the beloved by God the Father. That's why it's called good news. So the Bible says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Many will be justified. Many will be declared righteous in the sight of God one day to be made righteous in glory because of one man's obedience. Is anybody glad that Jesus obeyed the will of God the Father? Is anybody glad that he did not send forth the angels to come and get him when they taunted him while he was on the cross saying, come down from that cross, save yourself. But he wasn't here to save himself. He came to save us. And so he endured the cross, and he despised the shame so that we with him could be sitting down in heaven with he and God the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for not giving up on that cross. Well, God also blesses us from one. Genesis 12, 3, God said to Abram, who would soon become Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not some of the families, but all 
of the families. So God's vision has always been an inclusive vision, never a segregated vision at all concerning whom he came to redeem. He came to redeem all families on the face of the earth, which is why we can then go to the last book of the Bible after we leave the first book of the Bible, and we can see that God redeems us from one. And they sang a new song, Revelation 5 says. They said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So God's saving plan, his redeeming touch is global. It is universal from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Salvation would come to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles or to non-Jews. And so thank God for his plan that from one comes many. Well, the vision of the angel. When Jesus was born, the angel said to them in Luke chapter 2, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He came to save all people. That's why this is good news. The Jews, although Jesus was Jewish, they could not keep him to themselves. And Jesus came first to the lost sheep of Israel, but he would say in John chapter 10, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And when I come back, there will be one sheepfold and one shepherd. I'm going to bring everybody together. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus knocks down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he creates out of the two one new person. My God, from one there comes many. And so this is the vision of Jesus because this one is the most important thing there is. You see, America says out of many comes one. But for us, out of one comes many. Not only our creative order as far as us being made in the image of God, but also our redemptive order being born again after the image of Jesus Christ. And he came for all people And so this is the vision of Jesus. Jesus said, and I say to you, because he had just witnessed the faith of a centurion, of a Roman. And if you went with us to the movies yesterday, you were able to see the movie Risen. You were able to see the resurrection story through the eyes of an unbelieving Roman uh, general. But in time, he became a believer based on what he saw and even what he felt from the love of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has this Roman centurion come to him and he says, Master, my my servant is sick, but you don't even have to come to my house to heal him. All you have to do is speak a word and that'll be enough. And Jesus marveled at this man's faith. And he said, I've never heard even faith like this in all of Israel. And he says to the Jews who weren't too fond of Gentiles in that time, he says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he's planting a seed with his people, something that they should know because like good Jewish people and good Jewish leaders as Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law, they knew Genesis 12, 3, theoretically. 
They knew Genesis 12, 3, that God would bless every family on the face of the earth through Abram. They knew it theoretically, but when it came time to practicing it, they did not practice it because their prejudice was greater than their commitment to God. Rather than God informing their prejudice, their prejudice tried to stifle the move of God. But Jesus came and said, let me remind you of my vision, which is my father's vision, that everybody's coming to sit down at this table with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus shook stuff up. And that's what we have to do from time to time in his name, not in the name of foolishness or in the name of ourselves, but in the name of Jesus. Every now and then you got to shake stuff up. You got to stir stuff up because as the late Reverend R.L. Denson used to say that when you stir the pot, that's the only way those who are stuck on the bottom don't stay there and burn. You got to stir it up so that those on the bottom can begin to move around the vessel so they don't stay there and burn. Sometimes you got to stir the pot. Sometimes you got to shake things up. Sometimes you got to turn a table over in the name of Jesus when religion is trying to reign over the spiritual reality of having a relationship with God. So everything can't be prim and proper. Jesus spoke the truth and he spoke it in love. Also about the vision of Jesus, he said, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Jesus is saying, I not only want all the nations at this table and at this great banquet, because when we get to heaven, there's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb, table fellowship sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, table fellowship. Jesus sitting down with the Samaritan woman, table fellowship. Jesus sitting down with sinners and tax collectors, table fellowship. So he's saying, now, I want you to also bring in the people that society writes off, the marginalized, the castaways, the castoffs, the down and out people. Bring in the ones who really can't contribute anything at the table except their presence. Bring in the blind folks, bring in the ones that can't hear, bring in the maimed, bring in the lame, bring them all in so that my house, Jesus said, can be full. And if we as Christians and churches had a vision like that, we wouldn't have to complain about what the government isn't doing to help the lame and the poor and the blind and the underserved. If the church would take the words of Jesus more seriously and not just talk about them theoretically, but really believe them empirically and say, I will apply them by the grace of God. And I will make sure that my life intentionally is around folks like that, as opposed to just trying to be around folk who look like me and sound like me and vote like me and walk like me and drive what I drive and live where I live. Oh, Jesus, help us to take you seriously with what you said. What a vision you have. He goes on to say, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots, so that's the whore, the streetwalker, that they are entering the kingdom of God before you religious folks. Oh, he shook stuff up. What a vision he had. And he just didn't talk about it, but he walked what he talked. And so he hung out with these kinds of people that the religious people did not want to touch. Jesus saves sinners who come out of hedonistic lifestyles and questionable practices. You know how I know he saves sinners like that? Because he saved a sinner like me. And he saved a sinner like you. Mm. He came to save sinners. 
The vision of Jesus is also found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, when Jesus said, so the last will be first and the first will be last for many are called, but few are chosen. So when you look at the disparity that we see in the world today and why there can be such mass poverty, even in a country like Haiti, that is somewhat, I guess, 80 miles from the shores of Miami and North America, how there can be such a difference between the two countries. And we know that there are many historical things that contribute to this nation and that nation. But when you look at it, though, Lord Jesus, why are children suffering? Why are children starving? Why are children dying from sickness? Not only in Haiti, but in any other so-called third world nation. Why even here in America, as I look at my brother Charles and his family, knowing of the disparity amongst First Nations people and alcoholism and the suicide rate and all of this, the depression, Lord, why? Don't you just fix it now. God must know something that we don't know. He must know that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. So those who are last down here, when we get to heaven, they will be first in the kingdom of God. Oh, my. But just like anything, for those of us who are radically saved, we don't want to wait to get to heaven to see heaven come to earth. No, no, look, let it come now. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't want to wait to get to heaven to see the last become first there. Look, let's do it here. Let's do it now. And let it show up with how we spend our time, how we pray our prayers, how we invest ourselves. Help us to reach out to the last, the lost, and the least. Because the way you work this thing is that when we go, we get more than we could ever give because it's more blessed, you said that, Jesus, for us to give than to receive. You took a trip all the way across the Sea of Galilee to minister to one man who was possessed with the legion of demons. You delivered him, got back in the boat, and went back to the other side. So, Lord, some of us can get up and ride down into Nashville and help folk out. Some of us can get up and go across the sea and serve people in other nations. Some of us can get up and help Charles with the baskets of hope and help and serve the least of these in our community. We can help Salome Clinic. We can go down and we can help Sophia's heart, those who are homeless. We can do something rather than sitting around looking to be served rather than doing like Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because when I go, that's when I grow. But when I stay, hey, 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 oh man, I'm going to shrink and shrivel. Jesus, what a vision you gave. Oh my. And the vision of God is his diverse kingdom for all people to come together around his son. He's the one. He's the one. In America, it can be questioned. It's the American dream. From many, from America comes one. And that is an ideal that doesn't even work here. But in the kingdom, it should work from one comes many kinds of people coming together around the throne. I like how the blind man said it after Jesus healed him and the religious folk kept questioning him. And he said to them, look here now, one thing I know is that where I was blind, uh, now I see. 
ain't got time to get caught up in all that stuff. I just know one man who changed my life and turned me around, and that's enough for me. So when we go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, Paul, he says to this mixed congregation, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And in the family of God, when he adopts his children, there are no big eyes and little use. He is no respecter of persons. He grants sonship and daughtership to all of his children who come to him by faith through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For you are all sons of God. Because the Bible says in John 1.12, but to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, to them he gave the right or the power, or the authority to become sons of God because we have believed on his name. We don't have that right naturally. The right we have naturally is to die, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3.27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. All he's trying to say to that church and all I want to say to you, he's talking about their identity. You aren't what you used to be because if any person be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, everything is new, including your position and your identity. You've been baptized into Christ, meaning that you've been immersed into Jesus Christ. You've been identified with Jesus Christ. So much so that when he died, you died. So that when he was buried, you were buried with him. And when he rose, you rose with him. And then he goes on to say, not only have you been baptized or placed into, immersed in, identified with Christ. You also have put on Christ. You put him on. And it takes you back to when. Esau and Jacob were trying to get the blessing from their father. And Jacob was tricky about it. And so he disguised himself in Esau's clothes because Esau was the firstborn. So he was supposed to get the blessing from his father. But Jacob had the promise from God, but he snuck in there and he put on Esau's clothes. And he ended up getting the blessing from his father because of what he had put on. So he got the blessing by trickery. But I'm here to let you know we don't get the blessing of God by trickery. We get it by grace. We don't deserve it, but he gives it to us. And when we come into the Father's presence, we come in having put on Christ. So that when we walk in, we smell like the righteousness of Jesus. Because you remember how, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Abraham, it was Isaac who smelled Jacob, who was dressed like Esau, he was like, mm, you smell like Esau, but you sound like uh, uh, Jacob. And he still gave him the blessing. So when I walk into the presence of the Lord, I smell like Jesus, but I sound like Chris. And he accepts me in the beloved because of his son, Jesus Christ. So I put on Christ. The other night, Wednesday night, we were helping the children, GDK kids, the huddle groups got together. Had a great time. And my group, the Eagles, assisted with the children. And so myself, Clifton Roberts, Robinson, and Bob uh, Van Flatteren, we went upstairs and we worked with the children, ages 6 through 10. 
and it was boys and girls. There was energy all over the place, and we're just trying to hold it together. <laughs> and so Felicia Mason, she comes up with this uh, um, exercise for the kids, and it's a coloring exercise where they have to fill in and draw in this shape that they had of a child how Jesus sees me. So that was the exercise that night, how Jesus sees me. So you know me, I'm a big kid. I jump in there with him with crayons and color and stuff, and I'm drawing. Now, I just happen to be blessed in the artistic ability area, so I'm able to, you know, make mine precise and make it right. So when I do mine, all the kids are looking. Look at what pastor drawing. Look what pastor doing. I'm like, don't even copy off what I'm doing. I'm doing my thing. And the first thing I did when I drew this picture of how God sees me, I covered the image with red because it signifies the blood of Jesus. And so, so, so when God sees me, he sees the blood of Jesus. And then I put on the armor of God on my figure. I put the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, the gospel shoes of peace, and man, the shield of faith. And the kids are looking at that like, what's going on? And then they, I started seeing them drawing soldiers and stuff. And I use that to teach them that when God sees us, we're clothed in the armor of God. It's not so much that I got to put it on every day. I need to acknowledge that I already got it on because each part of the armor coincides sides with who Jesus is. He is my salvation. He is my righteousness. He is my faith. He is my truth. He is my sword of the spirit and he is my peace. So it's not I got to put it on every day. I got to acknowledge that I already got it on by faith. Oh, when God sees me, I put on Christ. Let me believe it today, oh God, that I'm covered in Christ today. Oh, but Paul, he doesn't leave it right there with identity. He says, now I know, I know, because sometimes Church folk want to be so heavenly minded that they're not earthly relevant or no earthly good. Yet you got to understand who you are spiritually to operate in the natural. But let's remember, we got to live like heaven till we get there. So let me drop verse 28 on y'all. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul, why you have to mess it up by bringing this in? Because Paul was a realist and he understood that Jews and Greeks did not get along. He understood that slave people and free people did not get along and there was division in the earth and there were people placing themselves up over others, putting others down. He also knew that men and women did not get along and that men put down women, had chauvinistic views. And so here he comes with the radical message of the kingdom. He gives them a vision to this church and I give it to ours as well. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Because in our church, we got all of these kind of people. But what you need to know so that you don't kill each other is that for you are all one in Christ. And your oneness in Christ supersedes everything else about you. I know you're a Gentile. But above all, you're one in Christ. You are seated with Christ. Your purpose comes from Christ. Your identity comes from Christ. So whereas you used to lead with your Roman identity and your Roman paperwork and your Roman pedigree, now you lead with your oneness and your identity in Christ. Now, just because that supersedes, our identity in Christ supersedes who we are naturally, 
that does not mean that we deny who we are naturally. Because this verse has been misinterpreted to try to erase the lines of distinction between Jews and Gentiles and men and women and rich and poor. No, 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 no. This verse is not about erasing the distinctions between race, class, and gender. Rather, this verse is about the placing of race, class, and gender in their proper context, which is secondary to our identity in Christ. So he never told a Jewish person to stop becoming a Jewish person. He never told a Gentile to stop becoming a Gentile or a man to stop becoming a man, Bruce Jenner, or or a woman to stop becoming a woman. He didn't erase the lines of distinction. He just placed them in their proper context under our identity in Christ. You see, I'm saved, thank God. And I identify with the fact that I'm saved. But I'm also a black man. And society sometimes don't care whether or not I'm saved. They don't care what church I go to. They don't care what I do for a living. They don't care what I've done in the name of God. They don't care how much education I have. Because to some people, I am still a a nappy-headed dude. That Some people still see me like that. Y'all thought I was going to say the other N-word. <clears throat> I'm black, I'm a male, and I'm middle income according to American standards, but according to worldly standards, I am wealthy in the top percentile of the world. But what good is being a black male if I don't have Jesus? Because if I don't have Jesus, I'm going to hell. I don't care how much Black Panther history I know, how much Black History Month stuff I know. If I don't know Jesus Christ, I'm a bus hell wide open. What good is having a bunch of money and and still go to hell because you don't know Jesus? What good is living in a gated community, but you ain't going to the gated community up there? It just does not make any sense. Because if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So when we look at this passage, yes, we see race because there is neither Jew nor Greek. We see race. We just don't judge people by race as Christians. We recognize that someone's skin color is a beautiful thing because God made them that way. And so although it's a description, it is not a definition by way of limiting them based on worldly philosophies and traditions that this is what the red man does. This is what the yellow man is like. This is what the white man or the black man or the brown man is like. And so we look at this and we see race as kingdom people, but we do not let race drive us as kingdom people. Because what drives us as kingdom people is the kingdom of God. Because without the kingdom of God, we cannot put race in its proper context. And therefore, we don't need to rewrite history to make one race feel better about the atrocities that it's done against other races of people. We can tell the truth and really shame the devil and glorify God so that we can really repent of stuff that was done in the past as opposed to keep sweeping it under the cup and denying it and not want to talk about it. Now we got to talk about it so we can give it a proper burial. We got to talk about it so we can get educated about it so it doesn't keep on happening. Hmm, Christians, we can't be ostriches. You know, when an ostrich, you can't say that in the plural, it's hard. But when an ostrich is running from a leopard or from a hyena, 
It can't go too fast, and it's not one of them birds that flies. So what it does, you know what an ostrich does. It finds a hole. And because it's so dangerous and it's being pursued, it puts its head in the hole, believing that if I can't see what's coming after me, maybe what's coming after me won't see me. That sounds good, but it ain't right. Because your head is in the ground, denying the problem that you're facing, your rear end is just sticking all up out of the ground. And for too long, the church of Jesus Christ, as it pertains to race and class and gender issues, we put our head in a hole on this one. But the Lord sent me by today in his name to kick the churches behind. Say, we got to get right. We, because if we don't get right, the world has no hope. We're the salt. We're the light. We should set the agenda, not follow the agenda. We see in this verse class distinctions because Paul would even say to the slaves, he would say in 1 Corinthians, man, if you can get your freedom, get it. But don't worry about it because he who is a slave is Christ's free man. And he understood that man again, what the old folks would say, earth knows no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. I know it's hard what you're going through, but guess what? The savior that you serve, he came as a slave too. You can identify with him because he can identify with you. So he'll join you in your sufferings in a way that he doesn't join people who are quote unquote free, which is why in James, he said that the one who has the advantage is not the rich, but the poor because the poor have a, a faith line with God that rich folks don't normally have because when you got a lot of stuff you don't have to pray deeply and hard but when you don't have a lot when you recognize that God is all you have therefore God is all you need and God comes through in the midnight hour that God heals you of your fever even though you can't get to a doctor when God makes your water clean even though your water is dirty poor folk know something about God that we rich folk don't know so when they start testifying you better listen we need to listen to those who've come through struggle and seen God bring them out of struggle as opposed to us who are not used to struggle trying to tell people who's struggling how they should think and how they should act shame on us so in this passage there is race class and gender this is God's diverse kingdom so our vision as a church it's just like God's vision. It's just like Jesus' vision. It's just like what Paul wrote. And that is our vision is to experience, explain, and expand God's diverse kingdom in the city and throughout the world. Well, Pastor Chris, how do we experience God's diverse kingdom, man? Well, it's real simple. We just got to come together. I think the Beatles had the song, right? Come together right now over me. And Jesus is saying, come together right now under me. And just don't say we're one nation under God if you don't mean it. And don't say that this is a church committed to God if we don't mean it. And don't say that you're a Christian committed to God if you don't mean it, because God will allow trials to come to help make us mean 
what we say. Because America won't pray unless America has a crisis. And America then comes to God when somebody bombs us. When something happens, we throw partisan politics out the window and we're crying out to God. I know it ain't politically correct, but God help us. Man, we should have learned something from our poor brothers and sisters because they never took their eyes off of God anyway. Prosperity messed us up. So we got to come together. How do we do it, Chris? How do we experience it? We got to worship together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You come into the sanctuary of God, you should just be able to breathe in his presence. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And we worship him through song. So sometimes the songs may not be what you like or what you're accustomed to. But you see your other brother or sister over there dancing, enjoying, lifting hands. And so maybe it don't get you the way it gets them stylistically or culturally. But you be happy for them. Because next week the tables might turn and you might be the one dancing and praying. And they might be like, what is this? I don't understand the chorus. Why are they repeating it over and over again? (laughs) We worship together. We learn together. We live together. We pray together. We repent together. We stand together. We fight together. We eat together. We serve together. We go together. It's just not me trying to go and talk about reconciliation. It's us going and talking about reconciliation. We work together here and in Haiti. Here and around the world. We grieve together. When you hurt I hurt. And we also rejoice together. When you're feeling good, I'm feeling good. That's the body of Christ. So we just experience life together. There's no formula for it. There's no one, two, three plan for it. Just give me five points and all of them have alliteration. Let them all rhyme. Start with the letter C. It don't always work like that. Just come on in here and live with folk. Love people, man. So how do we explain this, Pastor Chris? Well, we do it by teaching it To our parents. Because some of our parents, black and white, they're not getting this understanding of the scriptures the way that we're seeing it. Just like in Jesus' time, there were certain things that were shrouded to their understanding about the kingdom of God. And so illumination came in time. And so past generations, they loved God. But there were certain things that were shrouded concerning their understanding about the kingdom of God. And so now we live in a day because of the work of so many people whose shoulders we stand on, men and women, black and white and brown, whose shoulders we stand on. We should have more action because we have more revelation from the word of God about how it's supposed to be. So therefore, we got to teach our parents who may be from another generation who don't like you going to that church with that black pastor. No, this is not a black church, even though it has a black pastor. This is a multiracial church that happens to have a black pastor. I don't want you going to that church because your black daughter may start dating that white guy. Uh, Let me just drop this down here because black folks struggle with that one, too. It just ain't white folks. Black folks struggle with that one. I can't stand these white women taking all our good black men. I'll just leave that right there. I ain't even going to mess with it. I'm going to leave that right there. I got to put my son on the joke wheel. He's on the front row. 
He's visiting from college. He goes back Tuesday. But when he went to New Hope Academy, he was in the kindergarten or something. Brother man came home from New Hope Academy, this intentional mission to bring the black and the rich and the white and everybody together. Brother man comes home and and we're pastoring the church and and so we understand kingdom. But he comes home and he says, Daddy, guess what? I want to marry a white lady in kindergarten. My prejudice just kicked in naturally before the Holy Ghost could catch it. And I said, son, you mean the right lady? You going to marry the right lady? Holy Ghost went upside my head and said, boy, man, what you talking about? Because it's better for him to marry the white lady who is right with God than to marry a black lady who ain't right with God. Get out your prejudice, Chris. And you get out yours too. I'm not a betting man, but I got a strange feeling. You know, when I look at my family tree, my mother is part Scottish, so her father is white. So we got some white folk in our family, so I feel good about that. But I'm thinking about our current generation. If I, if I was a betting man, I'd pull this knot out of my pocket, it's all ones, and I would say, um, my son is going to integrate the Williamson family with something other than an African-American woman at some point in time. Can I get an amen from my son? Amen. And if he don't do it, Krista just might. So God want to know, is it theoretical or is it empirical? Do you really believe it? Pastor, you're getting too personal. That's why we got to talk to our parents about it. We got to teach our children about the diverse kingdom. We got to share with our family, our ethnic group. There's certain things I need to be saying to black people and you need to be saying to black people if you're black. And there's certain things white people need to be saying to white people about your own ethnic group. Because if I come to them talking about white privilege, which is a child of white supremacy, they're going to throw me out. But before they throw you out, they might at least listen to you a little bit when you talk about advantages and disadvantages of living in this system that was built on white supremacy and over 400 years, well maybe not 400, close to it, was dedicated to slavery and segregation. And we have not been as free longer than we've been bound as a nation. So 247 years of slavery and then 100 years of segregation and these things produce not only white supremacy but white privilege in the systems in which America operates to this day. So if I come along saying that we have been enslaved longer than we've been free, we're glad to be free. We thank God for the legislation that's been passed. But man, there are still some things rooted into the foundation of this nation that's still there. And they may not listen to me say it, but they might just listen to you say it with your blonde hair or your red hair. Now, some of us as black folk, we get blonde and we get red, but... That's all right. So we got to explain it. We got to talk about it. Biblically. Socially. We got to talk about it. We got to talk about it to our political party. Our denomination. It's amazing how the Pentecostal movement birthed through a one-eyed, 
black man in the early 1900s, the Azusa Street Revival. And people were speaking in tongues and miracles were being done. But when people would come and ask this man who was used by God to start this movement, he talked less about the wonder of tongues and he talked more about how the spirit brings unity in the body of Christ amongst black people and white people in the 1900s. So no wonder people did not want to hear him because they ended up breaking off from that movement and they started the black church of God in Christ and they started the white assemblies of God. So the Holy Ghost gave them tongues and all that good stuff and they shouting and dancing, swinging from chandeliers, but they could not break down that racial and cultural garbage. And here we are, 2016, still dealing with this. And some of us say, man, we don't need to talk about it. If you don't talk about it, it'll just go away. No, it won't. If you don't talk about it, it's just going to reinforce. That's why people losing their minds over Beyonce and the Super Bowl. We don't talk about it. Let's talk about it. We also expand this kingdom. How do we do it? Man, by preaching the gospel in all the world, by making disciples of all the nations, by sending missionaries, planting and supporting diverse churches, being peacemakers, being ministers of reconciliation, remembering the poor, empowering the powerless, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. That's how we expand it. We experience it. We explain it. We expand it. He didn't give it to us just for it to stay with us. We've got to expand the kingdom. Well, 1963 was an eventful year in our nation's history. I want to be careful because Paul Revere is our resident historian, great teacher of American history, and he's an expert on the life of Abraham Lincoln. But I think he would agree with me that 1963 was a very, very eventful year, second only to 1968 when we think about what occurred in the 20th century of American history. You see, John F. Kennedy was killed on November 22nd, 1963. Martin Luther King, Ralph Abernathy, and Minister Fred Shuttlesworth were arrested in Birmingham, Alabama, for parading without a permit. And was in jail that Martin Luther King, who was criticized by the religious establishment in Birmingham primarily white religious leaders, he began to write what we know as a letter from a Birmingham jail. And in this letter, he gives a defense of his actions, how he was invited into the community because he said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He also said that it's sad that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. So God's people, church people are segregated more than the world. Also in 1963, Medgar Evers was assassinated in his driveway. And the man who killed him did not get convicted until 1994. He was killed in 1963. That same year, the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed and four little girls lost their lives. The nation was a powder peg, powder keg. Well, in 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King delivered his prophetic and powerful I Have a Dream speech. And it was a momentous speech. It was a speech that shook up the world then. It still shakes the world up to this day. And I'm here to let you know that we as a church today, 
Those men and women who went before us cut a path that we are now walking behind. Because when he said, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, that's class. And the sons of former slave owners, that's also race that they would one day be able to come together as sisters and brothers and sit down together at the table of brotherhood. That was his dream. Strong Tower Bible Church, we are living that dream. I ran into someone the other day. I said, hey, man, how you doing? And he said to me, living the dream. So when I think about church and somebody says, man, how's Strong Tower doing? By the grace of God, we are living the dream. We're living the dream. But I have to join Martin and say, you're not the only brother that can have a dream. I want to come along in 2016 and let you know that I have a vision. I have a vision. And I have a vision that is deeply rooted in the word of God. I have a vision that one day this church will rise up and raise up leaders who will knock down the dividing walls of hostility between race, class, and gender. I have a vision that this church will be used by God to help bring together the multitudes of nations and refugees and immigrants who live right here in Nashville under the banner of Christian love. We'll help those people who are already doing the work. I have a vision that this church We'll bring together Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, and progressives without dividing over politics and the superfi- can't even understand my notes. The superficiality of men. That we can talk politics and not fight over politics. That we can have civil discourse and we can agree to disagree in a loving fashion because we're Christians and we should be known by our love, not by our political points. Oh, man, I have a vision for that. I have a vision that this church will empower, include, and utilize women in the body of Christ like it never has before without compromising God's creative order to do so. I have a vision that this church will dismantle institutional racism while working for the cause of social justice because Proverbs says that the righteous care about justice for the poor. I have a vision that this church will raise up teachers, missionaries, entrepreneurs, artists, inventors, doctors, homemakers, ministers, writers, athletes, and entertainers who will be change agents in the name of Jesus. I have a vision that Strong Tower Bible Church will continue to feed the hungry, educate the underserved, clothe the naked, give water to the thirsty, Visit those who are in prison and those who are sick. I have a vision that we we will be able to sing with new meaning the song that says, you're my brother, you're my sister, so take me by the hand. Together we will work until he comes. There's no force that can defeat us when we're walking side by side for as long as there is love. We will stand. I have a vision like that for this church. Do you see it? Are you a part of it? Do you want to be a part of it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. I thank you for my hero in Dr. King. 
because I'm not sure he even understood the depth of his words when he spoke that day. Pretty much like most prophets in the ages didn't really know exactly what they were saying. And so, Lord, I, I don't really know exactly what I'm saying. But I do know that what I'm saying is consistent with your word. And I pray that you would bless the vision of this house, that we can experience your diverse kingdom. We can explain it to people who need to know, especially in the body of Christ. And we can expand it to the world. This is your kingdom. This is not our vision. It's your vision. And it's bigger than all of us in this church. It's bigger than this church. But Lord, when we look back at the annals of history, you did great things with broken people in small numbers and people who didn't have a lot of resources. You did great things through them in spite of them. So Lord, we're asking that you would do it one more time. Help us, Lord God, to remember people who need you, people who are blind all around us, not only physically, but also spiritually. And Jesus, I thank you for being my greatest hero, for being our hero, for being the one from which this vision comes, the one who brings us all together. We preach you over blackness. We preach you over whiteness. We preach you over male. We preach you over female. We preach you over rich and over poor. We preach you over Republican. We preach you over Democrat. We preach you over Baptist. We preach you over Pentecostal. We preach you over American. We preach you over Haitian. We preach you. We preach you. Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead. Draw all men to yourself. Do it in our age, and we promise we praise you right now and when it's done. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as Jermaine comes? Amen. I get worked up about this. Get worked up. Thank you, brother. Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy.